Good morning, church. Can you believe we have two days of sunshine here? Two in a row. It's, it's amazing. This is the place to be right now. Got to spend yesterday at the beach with, with my wife and daughters and a couple of others from, from the church here. And I'm fired up that, to my knowledge, there's not even supposed to be any rain today. It's, it's glorious. We've been raiding around since September or October since for that to happen, it feels like. Um, so today, if you're visiting with us or um, you haven't been here in a while, we're continuing on in our series in the Book of Romans. And we are exactly halfway through the Book of Romans today. Glenn finished up Romans 8 last week, and we're going to be starting up Romans 9. Um, and if you haven't been here, the Book of Romans is a book about salvation. It's, it's talking about justification and salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The other day, this might come as a surprise, but a couple weeks ago, I, I was in the gym in the morning, and there, there was, there was a, a picture, a paper on the wall, and it was a new paper, and I walked over to it and, and could tell that it was a quote, but I wasn't sure what the quote was, so I went over the, to, to read it, and it didn't have a name on it, so I had to Google it, and this quote was by a person named Arthur Ashe, and it turns out that he is a, an American tennis player, especially. Um, and he won three Grand Slam titles, which doesn't mean anything to me, but it sounds really neat. So. Um, but, but what he said was, start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. And that's going to be our theme for today. We titled this, Start Where You Are. We're going to start there. We're going to get deep into Romans 9, and then we're going to finish back with this quote. But before we get into Romans 9, I think it's important that we talk about where we ended in Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 was, was a fired up message that Glenn gave last week, and um, it was just incredible. If you haven't, if you weren't here, if you haven't listened to it, it's on the podcast, listen to it. Um, and this verse 37 in Romans 8, I want to read it, but this is where we left off. It says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life... Get it up here for you. I'm sorry. Uh, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is, is the lifeline, that inseparable bond between, between us and God. And that's important that we remember that. So we finish Romans 8, like I said, fired up. And, and then we start Romans 9. And Romans 9 almost feels like a different different book. It feels like God's talking or Paul's talking about a different theme. We go from, from ramped up to, to kind of this, this deep low, this, this deep sadness, and we're going to see that in a second. Um, and because of that, Romans 9 is it's a challenging book to understand. It's challenging because Paul brings in a lot of Old Testament references, and lots of times in the New Testament, if there's a link, hyperlink to an Old Testament verse, you can go to that verse, read it, and it makes perfect sense. But in Romans 9, these hyperlinks are, are deeper than that. You have to actually understand the story and the background of the verse that it's linking to in the Old Testament. So we're going to get into that a little bit. There's also some difficulties in Greek and English translations in Romans 9. And when you throw all this together, it sounds like the God of Romans 9 is different than the God of Romans 8. It sounds like the God of Romans 9 is uh, a God who is, is forcing his will upon others and picking and choosing who he loves and, and not allowing us the free will to, to choose that ourselves. Um, fortunately or unfortunately for you, I'm not a history buff, 
So we had Michael Burns here a few weeks ago, and he's the, the church historian for the Minnesota church region, and he does an amazing job bringing in the Old Testament and bringing in the old history. Um, but I'm the person who in high school did my research to find the history teacher that was going to be the absolute easiest for me to get through. Uh, and and it, it turns out that, that the teacher that I picked was my freshman year uh, football coach who happened to be uh, needing to teach another class besides PE because the school mandated it for him. So I, so I took that class with him. I don't know if we learned anything about history, but, um, but here I am now. We're going to try to dig through this history together, okay? So... Before we actually get into these, these verses, we're going to go kind of group by group in, in Romans 9. It's important to understand what's going on with Paul, why, is he, why he is writing this, this letter to the church. We've touched on this a little bit already going through this series. Uh, but Paul was a former Jewish rabbi, um, an Israelite by, by heritage. Um, and, and he was a Pharisee. And he was a Pharisee who, who persecuted Christians um, until Jesus came to him and called him to be the apostle for the non-Jewish people, um, the Gentiles. And the Church of Rome at the time um, was a divided church. It had Jewish members, it had non-Jewish members, and um, the, the emperor of Rome at the time had, had sent all of the Jews in the church away from Rome for five years. And the Jews had recently come back, and so now there was a division between uh, the Jews that had returned and the, and the non-Jewish uh, people of the church. Um, and there was a clash, and that's why... Paul was writing this letter. He was writing this letter to the church of Rome so that he could bring those two together so that he could unite them. And the last thing before we get into this is that the Jews were Paul's worst enemy when it came to sharing his faith and preaching the gospel. Um, not every time, but nearly every time that he preached in a synagogue or interacted with, with the Jews, with the Israelites, um, he, was, he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was stoned. Um, and yet we find in these verses... Um, the, the heart of Paul. So let's read in verse, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul had, he had the heart of God. He didn't care what someone did to him. He didn't care what kind of anguish he had to go through. With another person, all he cared about was whether or not that person was was right with God and if he was saved or not. Charles Spurgeon put it this way: He was a um, a British preacher, talking about about this this heart of God, and he said, "Get love for the souls of men, then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the crotchets of a family and the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries if you are concerned about the souls of men." Get your soul full of a great grief, and your little griefs will be driven out. Uh, now, this doesn't say that we can't, we can't love those things, but, but the point is that, that we should be most concerned about the souls of people, regardless of who those people are and regardless of what they may have done to us. So we'll carry on in, in verse 4. Remember, we're talking about the Jews, the people of Israel. There's the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Israel, the, the Jews, historically had every blessing from, from God, from the creator of the universe himself. 
Um, he gave them promises. He gave them the Torah, also known as the law, the, the 613 instructions that, um, that God gave to Moses to give to the Israelites so that they could find righteousness in God. Um, they were given the great fathers of the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac, and they even um, had the, the, the lineage, the, the family tree, all the way down to Jesus. And this is why Paul is filled with so much sorrow. These people had everything from God. And when the time came that God stood before them in the form of Jesus, they missed it. They were even looking for a Messiah, and Jesus was standing there, and they missed it. I think what's important for us is that if a people like this, a people chosen by God, a people given so many blessings from God, can miss Jesus, then we need to be very careful that we don't miss Jesus ourselves. So... Romans 6. Before we, before we read through these, um, verse 6 of chapter 9, um, I think it's important that we step back and, and try to put our feet in the, in the shoes of the Israelites, of the Jews that Paul is writing to. Now, um, these Jews, their, their ancestors, had been giving all these things that we just learned about in the previous, <coughs> previous verse. And they believed that, that they were saved, that they... Um, were saved and were going to heaven to, to see God at the end of their days because they were children of Abraham. We learned back in, in Romans 4 that, that Abraham is, is the father of the faith. That's what we call him. Um, and because they could trace their ancestry back to Abraham, they believed that, that they were saved. And it's easy for us now to, to kind of look back at this, at this story thousands of years later and, and think that, like, what, what, were, they, what were they thinking? Why, why did they do that? But if we were back in that time, if we were in their shoes, there are very good reasons to, to believe that you were saved because you were an, an ancestor of, of Abraham himself. So we're going to read through um, 6 through 9. It is not as though God's word had failed. Uh, we'll pause there. Why, why would it seem like God's word had failed? Well, it's because God, God picked a, a people. He chose a people, gave them all these blessings. And then when the Messiah came, when Jesus came down um, and offered essentially a way for salvation, um, they missed it. And, and it can seem like, on the surface, God's plan failed. And if God's plan failed back then, then how are we supposed to trust that God's, fail, that God's plan isn't going isn't to fail now? How can we trust a God um, whose plan may have already failed? But we're going to find out that, that it didn't. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now we need to understand the Old Testament. This is the first of the scriptures that we need to understand what's really going on in the Old Testament. So Abraham was, was married to Sarah, um, and when he was approximately 75 years old, we have a few different um, indications of how old Abraham was throughout, throughout the book of Genesis. But around the time when he was 75, um, God spoke to him and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham and Sarah were, were very faithful in this promise from God. They, um, they believed that when God said something, that it was going to happen. So... About 10 years, 10, 11 years later, um, nothing had happened in, in this, in this uh, part of their lives yet. Sarah had not, been, um, had, had not come with any child. They, they didn't have any children through Sarah. 
Um, and Sarah had this idea that, um, or I would imagine that the conversation went something like, God made this promise to you, but he didn't specifically say that, that yet that I was going to be the mother of this child. So why don't you take my, my servant, Hagar, marry her, she can have your son, and we'll raise that son as, as the, the son that, that God promised us um, 10 years ago. Um, and so, so that happened, and um, Hagar gave birth, to, gave birth to Abraham's child, Ishmael, um, and, and this child was named uh, a child of the flesh. Um, and after 13 years after Ishmael was born, God came back to Abraham and said, we're still in Genesis, we're in Genesis 17, if you want to go there later and look, and said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And he goes on and says, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Uh, so we, we learn through, through understanding the Old Testament and through where we are in Romans 9 that you are not necessarily, you can be, but you're not necessarily a part of God's chosen Israel just because you're a descendant of Abraham. Um, Isaac was because he was a child of faith, because um, Abraham and Sarah trusted that, that even in their old age, uh, when Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 and, and Sarah was 90 years old, um, that through, through the faith, this child was born. And Abraham went on to have six other male children, six other sons with, with, a, with a third wife. Uh, but Paul is making it clear here that, that being a descendant of, a- of Abraham does not make you a part of, of God's Israel. I just want to make sure that we have that, that clear in our minds. We're going to move over to, to 10 to 13. And I almost thought about not including this. I, um, it doesn't, this, this is sort of a, a stop, and we're, we're taking a pit stop, and we're going to go into a gas station and, and learn a couple of things on, on, on this. It, it applies, but... But it's, it's not in line with, with the theme that we're going with here. Um, but I think it's very important because these verses right here, if you read them without understanding the meaning behind them, it sounds like God is an evil God. It sounds like God is, is a God that, that is controlling and, and selective and is not allowing us to have free will to, to love him if, if we so desire. So I'm going to read these. Not only that, but Rebecca's children. Now, Rebecca was Isaac's wife, um, who was also barren until Isaac pleaded to God that, that she have birth to a son, and, and God blessed them with, with children. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. When I was researching Romans 9, I came across this story of a preacher who wasn't a preacher yet, but he was two years into his faith. He had uh, been a Christian for two years, and he was out sharing his faith, walking around with his Bible, and a person approached him and said, how can you possibly love your God? And, and this Christian said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And the the angry person who came up to him said, go to your Bible, go to Romans 9 and open up verse 10. And he read 10 through 13. And he read it out loud and he said, how can you love a God who picks who he loves and who he hates before a child is even born? That's not an all-loving God. And I cannot love a God like that. 
And this, this Christian at the time did not have a response. He said for, for many years he didn't have a response. Um, and if you read this in isolation, it looks like that's, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. God is, God is picking a child before he's even born. So, so an embryo in a womb and, and deciding who he loves and who he hates. But we need, we need to dig into this to understand it so that, um, and I want you to understand it in case that situation ever comes up so that you're not caught in that, in that um, situation where you, where you don't know what, what to say or, or what to think. Um, and, and it starts in, in the fact that in the Old Testament, a lot of times uh, a people or a group of people, a nation, they're embodied in, in the name of one person. Um, and the, um, a good um, description of that or, or where this happens is, is in Genesis 25, 23, talking about this exact situation. Um, and the Lord is speaking to, to Rebecca here and says, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body, and the older shall serve the younger. So we need to understand that in this verse, God is not talking about Jacob and Esau. He's talking about the nation of Jacob, which is Israel, and he's talking about the nation of Esau, which is Edom. And if you go through the history, Edom was established first as a nation and ends up serving Israel. So that, that part of this, um, this scripture is, um, is fulfilled there. Um, but I think the, the part that, that made the, the person angry when he came up to, to this Christian was, was just in verse 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And when we go back to the, the Greek, um, the Greek word for, for hated that we have in, in this passage comes from the root word misos or mesos. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it just means to love less. So this isn't saying Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's saying Jacob I loved, Esau I loved less. And you may be, may be wondering, well, what's, what's the difference? Isn't he still selecting who to love more? Um, and he is, but, but there's a reason for it. Um, if you think about it, God, God knows from, from Adam that every human being ever to be on this earth is going to fall to sin. And because of that, the only way to offer salvation to, to the broken people of the world is to have a Messiah. And if you are going to have a Messiah and you're going to pick a, a place in time along the timeline of history, then you have to have for that Messiah an ancestry going all the way back to Adam. And if you're going to pick who is going to be in that, in that um, tree, in that family tree, then you have to then protect whoever's in that family tree a little bit more. You can't pick someone and then, oh, accidentally that person doesn't make it and, and all of a sudden the tree is broken, right? You have, to, you have to give a little bit of extra protection for, for whoever that, that person, that family, that nation is going to be that's going to give birth to, to the Messiah. And that's why there's a little bit of extra love towards Jacob. That's, that's where this, this family tree is, is coming into play. So let's jump back into verse 14. And we're sort of, we've kind of gone through some of the, the history. Um, we're going to touch on a little bit more, but... But now we're getting into this, this idea of free will and, and the boundary between God um, having control in, in this universe and, and, and directing us and directing things um, versus um, where, where our free will is and, and where, that, where that line is. Amen. And in verse 14, it says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
God has a funny way of working. I didn't know what Charlie was going to talk about today, but he literally, I almost don't even need to go to this slide. He, he already talked about mercy. I, mean, I, have, I have the same definition of mercy. Mercy is, is just receiving something that we don't deserve. And because all of us are broken, because all of us have fallen to, to sin, what we really deserve from God, if God is really um, an all-loving and just God, the only thing we should expect from Him is wrath. The only thing that we should receive from Him and that we should expect to receive from Him is wrath. There is nothing else. Anything else that we receive from Him that isn't wrath is mercy, is a gift, is a blessing. And it's important here that, that we understand why Moses is in, is in this, this verse. Moses has a, has a very special history in that Moses was the person that God selected to bring the Israelites out of their bondage of slavery from the Egyptians that they had been in for, for 400 years. But Moses, when God initially asked him to, to do that, he resisted five times before he finally gave in. Um, and, and if you want to look this up, it's, it's in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 later. And, and on the fifth time that he, that he resisted, the Bible reads that Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord, but please send someone else. And it's important here that we understand that God is giving us free will. He's allowing us to choose whether or not we want to, to abide by his plan, listen to his plan, or, or not. Unfortunately, Moses finally had a change of heart after the anger of wrath fell upon him. We don't really know how that presented itself, um, but it did. And then we're going to carry over into 15 here, uh, or 17, I'm sorry, and, and talk about someone else. So now we're talking about Pharaoh. And it says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, this is one of those scriptures that sounds like God is not the all-loving God that he was in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8. This sounds like God took a person who was Pharaoh, who was, was a loving person, and who would have willingly followed God and transformed him into a person with a hard heart who disobeyed. Well, that's not what happened. And again, we have to understand what the Old Testament says so that we can know that that isn't what happened. Right. Now, God, through Moses, gave, um, gave Pharaoh the, the opportunity to, to release the Israelites. And this happened, I found it 12 times in the Old Testament in Exodus. Um, I've read that it's 15. So between 12 and 15 times, Pharaoh said no to God via saying no to Moses about letting the, the Israelites go. And, and it leads us to, to question and to wonder, why does God keep going back and back and back and back to the same person who is refusing to say no, refusing to say no, refusing to say no? Um, and there are a couple of reasons. One is that he has that mercy. He wants people to come to him. He wants people to listen, but he gives us the free will. So there is that choice that we can say no. But at the same time, he can use even us saying no for his, for his greater plan. He could have wiped out all of Egypt the first time that he said no. All of Egypt, including Pharaoh, the Israelites would have been free, and Israel could have walked off and, and been with God. But he didn't do that, and he didn't do that because by the end of the, the, third, um, the third time that he said no, uh, we, we start getting into the plagues here. At the end of the, the third plague, the, the magicians who had been countering what Moses was doing to prove um, that, that 
there was a, a power of God that, that Pharaoh should, should be worried about, um, these magicians started to, to believe in God. And then after the sixth plague, the officials of Pharaoh started to believe in God. And then by the ninth plague, Moses was regarded highly by both Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then after the tenth plague, when Israel finally left Egypt, it says that the Bible, that a mixed people left. It wasn't just the Israelites that left, but um, we don't know how, how big the number was, but, but the Egyptians left with them as well. So instead of just wiping out all of Egypt, now we have a group of people who left that includes some of the Egyptians. And we need, to, we need to realize that God permits us to act with free will. He, he, will, he desires to use us and he will ask us to, to do things in ways um, in, in various ways, maybe that's through through reading the Bible, maybe that's through studying with someone, um, maybe that's through prayer. But but we have the ability to to say no or or to say yes. And what's happening here? What happened to Pharaoh is that every time you say no to God when He asks you to do something, your heart hardens a little bit. Because God is love. Because God is what He is. Because He embodies love. Just the act of saying no and disobeying will harden your heart a little bit. That's what's happening in, in 17 to 18. Right. So as we carry on into, into 19 here. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? I'm going to jump down to the New King James Version for 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? God has a greater plan. No one in the history of time or in the future of time to come will be able to cause God to to not follow that plan. He has a greater plan, but he gives us the free will to choose whether or not we want to go along with that plan the way he desires us to. Um, and that's what the resisting his will is talking about here. Um, no, one, no one can resist his will on the greater scale, but, but we can on a smaller scale. Now, the, the illustration of the potter and the clay is something that, that comes up multiple times in the New Testament. Um, and it, it's pretty easy to say, God's the potter, we're the clay, he forms us how we want and, and move on. But, but this, this analogy is deeper than that. And we find it in in Jeremiah 18. I'm just going to read it. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So we made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? I've only played with clay a couple of times. I remember in elementary school trying to make a pot. But when, when you're making a pot, and if, if you look into what, what, a, what a potter did, uh, potters have an idea of what they want the clay to be before they sit down. But sometimes they get some clay that is marred, and it just will not form into what they want it to form into. Um, and that is what happens to us when we say no to God. When we resist his will, when he asks us to do something, we say no. Our heart hardens a little bit more, and he has to now do one of two things. He can either throw us out and get rid of us, or he can take our, our marred clay, our marred selves, and turn us into something else that, that is basically second best to what, to what he originally wanted us to do, because he can't now use us for what he wanted because we said no, and because we, we are slightly marred at that point. So 
sometimes it can feel like, and we, we can suffer from sins or we can suffer from um, character traits or, or physical traits, and it can feel like, why did, why did God make us this way? Why, why am I the way that I am? Why did God make us this way? And sometimes it's as simple as, it's not that God made you that way, it's because we are resisting what he wanted for us, and in doing that, by, by disobeying what God wants, we, we are being marred just a little bit. We're being hardened just a little bit. And, um, and that's something that, that, that we need to consider. It's, it's not necessarily that God made us this way. It's, it's that we, we very likely made ourselves this way. Amen. We're coming in for a landing here, here pretty soon. Um, verse, verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? The New King James Version um, uses the word long-suffering, um, and I'm going to, to use that. Now, God, when we say no to God, when he asks us to do something and we say no to God, this isn't something that, that God enjoys. He, he suffers through coming back to us time and time again, asking us to do something. And that's where this long suffering comes from. Um, and when we, when we say no to God, we're, we're fitting ourselves for destruction. Um, it is uh, obviously not a good thing to say no to the creator of the universe who, who is asking us um, to do a task, to, to go meet with someone, to study something, to, to strengthen your faith here, to, to go pray, to learn how to fast, whatever it may be. Uh, but when we say no, we're, we're fitting ourselves for destruction. And we have to ask ourselves, why, why again does, does God continue to come back to us again and again and again? And it's because he wants us to eventually become like Moses. He hopes that we, that we don't become like Pharaoh and he, he doesn't have to use us like he used Pharaoh. Um, but but if, we, if we do become a Pharaoh, he can still use us. Um, to his greater plan, um, virtually at, at the cost of ourselves. Um, and at the end of this verse, um, we're reminded that, that, that Israel is, is the God of Israel, or the Israel of God is, is both Jews and Gentiles. It's, it's not one or the other. Um, God has always had this elaborate plan of saving everyone. And at first it seemed like he really only cared about the Israelites. And then we realized that the Israelites were broken and... Now the Messiah came, and the Messiah seemed like at the cost of the Israelites was able to offer salvation to all of the Gentiles. Now we're not going to touch on it here, but when we get into Romans 10 and 11, we're going to see that God still has a plan for the Israelites who seem at this point in time um, to be kind of left behind as the Gentiles are, are finding salvation. Uh, the rest of the chapter, 25 to 33... Um, is really talking about God using the hardness of Israel's heart to bring salvation to the Gentiles, what I just talked about. Kind of at the expense of the, of the Israelites, because Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, and was resurrected, the Gentiles, by faith, now can have salvation. Amen. And this means that anyone who has faith in Christ can be, can be saved. But it also means that only those who have faith in Christ can be saved. Let's read 30 to 33. 
What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. I love this idea of Jesus being a stumbling stone. We usually don't think of Jesus like that. We usually think of him on a pedestal as as the savior of of a people, of 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 us, of of anyone who wants to be saved. Um, but but for the Israelites, he was a stumbling stone. Um, he was he was a punch in the gut that that something's that something's amiss, something's wrong, um, and that that the way that they were living life and the way that they were trying to pursue righteousness and salvation was wrong. I told you we were going to end up back here, so I'm going to keep true to my promises. When I was studying the Bible, um, this time four years ago, I, I was an atheist. I didn't even believe that there was a God. Uh, but when I was studying the Bible, we, my wife and I, we had just had our, or in the midst of me studying, we had our first child, um, and her name is Kylie. And I remember sitting at my pastor's house. Um, we, were, we were going through a study. And I was really struggling with, with this idea of good and evil. How could there be an all-loving God who is in control of, of this universe? And how could he, if, if that's true, how could there be evil in this world? How, how, how do we reconcile that? And, and my pastor at the time looked at me and said, Trevor, if you could, would you make Kylie love you? And I said, what? He said, if you could, would you make Kylie love you? Would you make your daughter love you? And, and I thought about it, and I said, no. And he said, why? And I said, because the risk of losing her to not love me um, is worth it if she chooses to love me on her own. Yeah. Um, and that's what this free will is. That's, that's what God is waiting for us to do. Um, God wants us to choose him. He is willing to, to risk losing each and every one of you. He's willing to, to risk me dying and spending the rest of of our days in eternal damnation in hell, as terrible as that is, that is countered and it's better for us to choose him. That, that loss is worth it to him because he wants us to, to choose to, and to find him and to find salvation in Jesus. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're, if you're a non-believer like I was and you don't believe in God, but if you're sitting here today, if you're listening to this on a podcast later, I still remember the, the picture, the slide that was on the projector when I first got, got the first punch to my, to my faith, um, I remember the sermon. I remember what the message was about. Maybe, maybe this is, is that message for you today, that, um, that, God, that God is seeking you, that God wants you, but, but God is not going to save you without you finding him as well. Maybe you're a believer who is rejecting Jesus. Maybe you're like, like the Israelites were. Maybe, maybe you're living by, by works, but you have not given your life over to, to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then, like the Israelites, you're, you're missing salvation. Um, the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. That, that is the way that God designed this, this universe to be, and that is the only way that any of us will ever be with Him in heaven at the end of our days. Amen. And maybe you're a believer who has given their life over to, to Jesus Christ and, and he is your savior. But 
Are you, are you being the clay that God designed you to be? Or are you resisting what he is asking you to do? Are you, are you listening to him when, when he has a brother or sister come and, and say something to you and, and say, you should, you should be a little bit better in this. Or you should do this. Or you should go study with that person. Or, or you should pray more. You should get in your word. Are you hardening your heart? Or are you truly becoming the clay, becoming the, the vessel that God desires you to be? And use what you have. And what we have in this sense is, is our free will. If you're, if you're here today, if you're listening, God is calling you to do something. He might be calling you to start seeking out your faith. He might be calling you to accept Jesus as the Lord of your life. Because we don't know when our time here ends. And when it's over, it's over. And if you didn't find Jesus, you didn't find Jesus. Um, and maybe, maybe, it's, maybe you're here listening today. Maybe what he's calling you to do is, is to become more of what he wants you to become. Stop fighting him. Stop resisting what he's calling you to be. Stop not listening to him. Go where he wants you to go. Do what he wants you to do. If you, if you open, your, open your heart to what, God, what God's plan is for you, you might be shocked at where it's going to take you. But, yeah. but you're going to be blessed yeah. in that journey. Amen. And finally, do what you can. I want you to remember as we close that God is, as painful as it is for him, he is willing to risk losing you for all of eternity. At the cost of, or at, at, in the hopes of, of you finding him and finding your salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.